In his war of aggression against a peaceful, democratic neighbor, Putin has achieved the impossible. The solidarity of NATO has been boosted to a level unimaginable just six months ago. Finland and Sweden are now members. Germany is supplying offensive, heavy weaponry to Ukraine, and most European countries have committed to spend at least 2% of GDP on defense. This feels like an own goal on an unprecedented scale by Russia. But what will be the cost of this Western unanimity, especially if a new Cold War with Russia is on the horizon? Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. If you enjoy the topics we cover, please like and subscribe to help boost the popularity of our videos on YouTube. And please share the links also to videos with anyone you think might be interested in our incredible speakers. James Bruno writes commentary on foreign affairs and national security. He is the author of four best-selling books. James has been interviewed on CNN, NPR, Fox News, BBC, Sirius XM Radio, and other media channels. He is a contributing writer with the Washington Monthly and has contributed to Politico Magazine, HuffPost, Cypher Brief, The Weekly, and other publications. Mr. Brunner served as a diplomat with the US Department of State for 23 years. He holds MA degrees from the US Naval War College and Columbia University, and a BA from Washington, George Washington University. James, welcome. It's great to be here, thanks. Now I understand that you have had many assignments in your long and varied career within the Department of State, including many overseas postings, and even served within a Secret Service presidential protective detail overseas. That's correct. I've had a varied career and enjoyed almost every minute of it. And you know the Pentagon, CIA, and other foreign affairs agencies really well, and you must have a clear impression of how they are functioning now at this time of extreme international tension. I, I think I have a good picture. I still retain uh, contacts in those agencies and uh, keep on top of the issues that they are working on. So I think um, things are under President Biden are working fairly smoothly within the government's national security apparatus. Um, uh, there was uh, some effort to repair the damage that was done by his predecessor but uh, he's, uh, he's put uh, solid people in place and I think they're doing a pretty good job. Fantastic, yeah, that, that's the impression I certainly get uh, from those uh, reasonable voices on the, on the left and the right. But let's start with what seems to be a huge strategic failure. Putin seems to have generated an unprecedented level of unanimity amongst Western alliance, which has raged against Russia. Yeah. Uh, President Putin has done for the Western alliance what the alliance couldn't do for itself since the, uh, the end of the Cold War. He has, through his invasion, his aggression against Ukraine, um, instilled much more solidarity, sense of purpose, and uh, resolve among the members. So, and not only that, but he's achieved a, a, a great goal of uh, getting uh, two traditionally neutral countries, Finland and Sweden, to join the alliance. So thank you, President Putin, for all of that. And are you surprised at how close 
the positions of the US, France, Germany, and others now are, especially considering you know, what, uh, whatever I went through um, in the years following 2016. Well, I, I know even in, during the Cold War years when I was working uh, these issues involving NATO and the EU, um, trying to get 30 governments to work in unison is like herding cats. And uh, so it takes a lot of intense diplomacy, a lot of effort, a lot of personal investment on the part of the leaders as well. And, um, and that's paid off. But uh, it, I think before, not to give too much credit to Putin, but before the aggression against Ukraine, um, NATO was often finding, uh, finding it difficult to define its mission. And not only that, but the commitment of individual members to NATO's uh, um, uh, effectiveness uh, was uh, varied. Uh, the, the, the goal was to have each government commit 2% of its uh, budget to national defense. And not all members were meeting that. But I think um, after uh, February of this year, um, governments have committed themselves to indeed uh, achieve that goal. So the aggression against Ukraine has been um, really a catalyst for Western unity. I think one of the things you said has preempted really my, my question, which was how difficult is it to keep allies on the same page, you know, especially in their public statements and uh, positions? It's like I said, it's, it's almost like herding cats. <clears throat> That's why um, intensive diplomacy, communications, contacts, meetings are, are necessary. We've seen some wobblings on the part of the Germans, the French, the Italians, with some irresponsible um, statements, in particular on behalf of Macron, about Ukraine possibly ceding some territory, which was not, of course, received well. But um, you have that in any circumstances. As I said, even during the Cold War years, uh, it took quite a lot of uh, intense effort to keep um, all NATO members on the same page. But it worked. As long as the, they're all moving in the same direction, um, that works out quite well. And isn't Russia continuously looking to leverage any divisions between the Allies, especially to fuel its propaganda efforts? Yes, fortunately, um, Western nations, members of the alliance, have decades of experience in dealing with this. And uh, I myself, as a diplomat, dealt with Russian machinations on the front line, and as well as uh, also in policy circles in Washington for many years. We're pretty good at it. Um, yeah, the, 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 the goal of Putin at this point, I think, is to try to leverage, um, in particular, energy policy to try to separate and create divisions within the alliance. So this would involve um, seeing the price of uh, petroleum go even higher. Um, the uh, uh, consumers in, in Europe and, and in the United States and elsewhere are um, really, their, their patience is tried. Um, because of the high energy costs, 700% increase in natural gas in Europe in the past few months. I mean, that's phenomenal. 
uh, winter's coming. Um, and uh, uh, I think Putin has his eye on uh, how uh, possible energy shortages will play out, is particularly in Europe. If uh, European citizens are having a hard time heating their homes, uh, we may see some uh, divisions domestically, but that hasn't happened yet. Because he's tried to weaponize, well, everything, hasn't he? Uh, at the moment, it's food. Uh, and I think he thought that he could really weaponize uh, the shipments of grain, but that is finding other ways out of the country. And of course, uh, brave Ukrainian farmers are finding ways to you know, harvest that crop and get it onto transport. So it looks like that, uh, you know, that, that terrorist threat to starve the world is not to succeed. Fuel is the next obvious commodity to weaponize, isn't it? Absolutely. He doesn't have a lot of arrows in his quiver. Um, he has, I would say he has less leverage over the West than the West has over, over Russia. Uh, nonetheless, he has those two cards to play, the, the food card as well as the energy card. And he's going to play it for as much as he can uh, get out of it. In, in the next 10 days, I believe, for example, um, natural gas uh, supplies to Germany from Russia will be shut for about 10 days. Um, uh, the stated reason is for technical improvements, uh, repairs, that kind of thing. The key question on um, policymakers' minds uh, in Europe is, will he turn it back on? And so we have these kinds of things playing out that would never have made the headlines uh, before February, but uh, today, today uh, people are paying close attention to it. So we'll see how far he wants to play that energy card. And he certainly has uh, some leverage in that area, as well as food, as you say. And behind the unanimity that we see uh, in terms of foreign policy and broad cross-party support for, uh, you know, both in the US and the UK to the foreign policy position, uh, what kind of arguments and conflicts take place you know, behind closed doors within the foreign policy departments, the kind of debates that we don't get to see? I think they center on domestic, uh, the effect of Ukraine policy on domestic affairs. So I can imagine, I mean, pick any European leader, it could be Macron, it could be uh, the Italian uh, prime minister, it could be uh, Olaf Scholz uh, of Germany, be any of them, behind closed doors stating that, yes, we are fully committed to, to supporting Ukraine, but we have, to we have to worry about our own domestic constituencies and the sustainability of their commitment to our policy. So um, I could imagine these leaders in, a G for example, the G7 met at the end of June. And, um, and I could imagine some of the discussion, a good part of it centered on that. Um, um, what, if what if petrol um, reaches um, astronomical uh, prices? What if um, heating uh, natural gas supplies uh, become uh, restricted and people uh, are living in cold homes? Um, we cannot guarantee over the over an extended period of time that our domestic um, 
constituencies will be able to stick with us on this commitment to Ukraine. So it's a dicey, tricky situation. It's not just foreign policy, it's domestic policy, it's economic policy that's at play here. And so all of these have to be, have to be um, managed with great finesse by all the leaders in coordination with each other. And of course, for, uh, you know, of course, uh, opposition uh, politicians will always try to sniff out an opportunity uh, to gain some advantage electorally. So what do you think this crisis will trigger further down the line, uh, you know, from the economic pressures alone in terms of volatility in domestic politics, the rise of extremism and social division? Um, I think we've seen some uh, of that uh, inter-party jockeying over Ukraine in Germany, um, in France, and some of the smaller members. But we, I don't think we've seen much of it uh, at play in uh, the UK or in the United States or in Canada. Um, you know, it's hard to predict whether, uh, let's say six months from now, um, with the Russians and the Ukrainians slugging it out to the point of a near exhaustion. And at the point at which food prices are really out of control, energy prices are through the roof, um, how that plays on each individual country's domestic situation in the parties. Um, so far in the United States and also in the UK, there's been uh, the, it's been quite amazing uh, the solidarity among the political parties in support of Ukraine, especially in the United States. It's quite amazing when the Democrats and Republicans can't agree on almost anything else. But they've been quite, with the exception of a few fringe characters, uh, they've been quite so solid in their support of Ukraine. And, and say what you will about Boris Johnson, I think he did a pretty good job of of um, leading uh, uh, the British public on, on this policy. And uh, so we can hope that his successor will uh, continue down that road. And I have to admit, I have very little positive to say about him, but on the Ukraine issue, he has been consistent and he's been strong. It seems to me that, that Biden as well has also had an extremely tough and consistent line which, uh, you know, there, there might have been some attempt to use it as a political football, but he has been so, I would say, unwavering on this. And then when you have the Lend-Lease, it's an extremely strong policy, isn't it? It is. I think as long as uh, Joe Biden is in the White House, America will, will remain steadfast in its support for Ukraine and has broad support among the American public. Again, we're, at a time when, when um, our electorate, our citizens are, are divided um, over a whole range of things, bitterly divided. Um, my worry is that, uh, I can't speak for the UK because I don't have a good sense of how politically things are shaking out in the wake of uh, Johnson's resignation, but on this side uh, of the Atlantic, um, we still have a problem with um, right-wing populism. And there's no guarantee that Joe Biden 
will run again for stand for election, or if he does, that he will win. His approval numbers are um, at record lows right now. Um, inflation just reached, a, I believe, a 40-year record high. Energy prices are, um, are uh, have been very high as well. Um, it's very conceivable. It's not out of the not at all out of um, out of mind that the Republicans, another right wing Republican, could be um, uh, it could be Donald Trump. It could be one of his copycats might take the White House. Um, barring that, if uh, a Democrat is in the White House, continues to be in the White House and win, wins election in 2024, there's still the, the, the uh, Congress to think about, the two houses of Congress. So you can have a situation where you have a, let's say a Democrat president, but Republicans controlling both houses of Congress and you get, you, that could result in gridlock. So we have a lot of variables here. And in the same, a similar analysis could be made of the German electorate uh, in different terms. Uh, the French, who just, Macron just lost, his party lost 80 seats in their legislature. So uh, things are very tricky. And of course, the Russians are watching this. Putin watches this very carefully and will exploit any opportunity to uh, leverage weakness on our part. Um, nobody can predict what's going to happen, but we all have to keep in mind these variables which can uh, upset the apple cart. And you mentioned politicians who, uh, you know, could take advantage of the situation. And one of the obvious choice, of course, is, is Trump himself. He's a little distracted at the moment, isn't he, though, by the uh, 6th of January hearings, and to some extent is sort of hopefully sidelined by that. I think the Democrats are playing this masterfully. What they're doing is they're, they are lining up a uh, coterie of highly credible Republican witnesses uh, at these hearings. And they've, they've been knitting together a, narr a narrative, a story of what happened in that, uh, that day of January 6th uh, as more revelations come to the fore. And, and the, the thing that people like Trump fear the most is truth. It's a sanitizer, it's a disinfectant. That, that goes with any strong man. If you can find a way to expose truth um, up front and personal, um, then, they, then they start panicking. Um, we keep, those of us who are uh, deeply con concerned and care about demo our democracy are keeping our fingers crossed that this will have a, uh, an effect on his supporters um, and that we'll see Trump and Trumpism uh, slide into a deservedly, well-deservedly into the trash heap of history. But there are Trump, dare I say it, look-alikes. That's almost an impossibility. Mm -hmm. He is, a, one would hope, totally unique. But you have perhaps uh, more pernicious, more effective figures lining up, uh, like Tucker Carlson, for instance. So I haven't really sort of watched what's going on but I don't know how these uh, 6th of January hearings are playing on Fox News, but certainly Tucker Carlson is maybe one of the most, uh, let's say, sort of dangerous, pernicious characters uh, that could potentially take advantage of the situation. 
Well, I, <clears throat> I liken Tucker Carlson to your Lord Haw Haw during World War II. He's, um, he's uh, nothing but a uh, shameless propagandist. Um, but yes, he has the ear of millions of uh, people, including friends of mine. Um, and I, I still have a hard time grasping how people fall into this, what they call a cult. But in any case, I believe that um, uh, they're not, people like Carlson and, and these others are, including pol these politicians, I'm keeping, trying to keep optimistic that history will uh, not treat them well that they're ephemeral. They won't be around much longer. We've gone through similar periods in our history where we've had uh, loudmouth uh, propagandists, especially in the 20s and 1930s, um, that had the command of millions of Americans. And uh, it was scary, uh, but, they, uh, uh, but history took care of them. And they're now just asterisks in te uh, history textbooks. If we stay on Trump for a moment, as I, I, I don't want to, you know, get too distracted by him, but he is an important element in this, isn't he? And, uh, you know, one of the key uh, Republican arguments is that if Trump had been in power uh, for a second term, then the Ukraine war wouldn't happen, would have, wouldn't have happened. I mean, my take on it is that it would have happened and your Ukraine would be losing right now. and We'd be in a, a terrible position, but... My question here is, is Russia an asset, either incidentally or, or literally in terms of, a, a, I would say, a, an espionage asset? It's funny you should ask that question, Jonathan, because I have happened to have written fairly extensively on this <clears throat> in various publications. Uh, um, I went out on a limb <clears throat> before... Trump was uh, elected president when he was still running for office. And I went out on a limb and stated that I thought that he was an asset of Moscow. Whether he was witting or unwitting, it was not clear yet. But as time went along, I felt that there was some connection between him and uh, Russian intelligence that had gone, that, that goes back decades actually to the 1980s. And, uh, and Christopher Steele, the, the former MI6 man who uh, was responsible for the infamous Steele dossier, um, really got this in front of people's eyes and uh, got us talking and paying attention. The problem is the, the hard evidence hasn't come out. What I, having been a diplomat and a, a news reporter, and uh, in my early days, a, a military intelligence analyst, I learned how to <clears throat> look at details and detect patterns. And what I always felt about Trump is there, was too, there were too many coincidences um, in his actions and in his statements that uh, link him up too neatly with Moscow. And I'm not saying this is some kind of alarmist or uh, ideologue or Trump hater. Um, I'm saying this based on my analytical, um, my own analytical abilities. And I'll give you one little example, and then I won't belabor this much longer. Um, <clears throat> when he was president, he picked up on the little country of Montenegro, 
in the ball. <clears throat> Instead, it basically repeated Russian policy um, regarding Montenegro. As you, may, as you may recall, Putin tried to foist a coup d'etat against the, that government um, some years ago. And it didn't work. The Montenegrins suppressed it and have been bitter about that ever since. The Russians have always been meddling in that little country. It only has a population of about 600,000. I've been there. Um, <clears throat> but um, one, in, in one speech, or you want to call what his utterances speeches, Trump almost verbatim repeated Moscow's policy on Ukraine, which was a bunch of uh, crap, just nonsense. And, and one has to stand back and think, wait a minute, this guy doesn't know Montenegro from Disneyland. He's probably never heard of it before, much less known anything about the country. Why, is, why was he doing this? And that was um, a red flag for me. And an earlier red flag was when he was running in 2016 uh, for president, the Republican Party platform or his own platform, policy platform, had a critical um, line in it about Russia. And then suddenly it was removed. And, and there was a connection made between that action and some of his aides doing that. I mean, why? And there are many more things like that. I, and, I, and I won't, we could do a whole separate program on interview on this. But I've always felt, and, 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 I, and I, um, former CIA directors, Morrell and Brennan agree that, and other intelligence um, experts agree uh, with me that uh, if not a winning asset, Russia is certainly, uh, I'm sorry, Trump is certainly an unwitting asset or what the Russians or the Soviets always like to call useful idiots. And uh, you know, without being an expert in the field and, uh, and possibly making a, a fool of myself, the flag for me with my deeply suspicious mind was Manafort. Um, you know, why was that individual hired? His connections were absolutely you know, transparent. Uh, with a Putin-supported puppet in Ukraine, um, you know, even if Trump didn't know that much about Manafort, he potentially was taking orders from somebody who who did know what that connection was, and that guy could then build the network around the Trump family, the aides, and put that infrastructure in place. That's true. Um, that uh, Manafort was a, a key agent of influence of the um, foreign, uh, Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. I'm, I, I think that's clear to any professional looking at that case. And if it weren't for um, his having been pardoned by Trump, he'd be in jail, not for espionage, or, but for other, um, other crimes. Uh, however, as you say, his links with, in particular, one cutout asset of Russian intelligence um, was key. And there was this nexus between that fellow, I uh, can't remember his name, but that KG, uh, that SVR asset and a Russian lawyer um, and Manafort, which was very exposing, very revelatory. 
I can't remember the name of the guy, but uh, I do remember an interview with him. It was a sort of uh, a sort of quasi mobster, wasn't he? Um, Most of them but, are tough, uh, tough, tough um, knuckle dragger types. I've dealt with some of them myself in my career. The worst are the GRU guys. They're really rough cut, thuggish yeah. types. The uh, the old KGB slash <clears throat> SVR um, officers tend to be more polished, educated, uh, smarter, better at their work. I think. And then the the lawyer Vasilnitskaya, I think, was her, her name. Um, she's more of a hybrid, wasn't she, of uh, old school sort of KGB, but also <coughs> she had a foot in the new propagandists kind of camp, you know, spinning different narratives, throwing lies out like, uh, you know, a, a, a fighter jet would throw out chaff to distract. Um, very kind of conspiratorial character at the heart of... Uh, that she, straddled, she straddled Russian intelligence and private practice as a lawyer, and which is exactly how, I mean, it's classical tradecraft, uh, mm. one kind of tradecraft anyway, on the part of Russian intelligence. They used her. She was a witting tool. She was not a useful idiot. She was a witting tool of uh, Russian uh, policy and espionage. Um, but then she got Mm-hmm. exposed and uh, as well but it's funny the people in her company jared kushner and these other care in the, the the trump kids um she was playing them like a, a play, playing them like a simple tune i mean she she had wormed her her way into those circles until some uh, clever journalists uh, uh really uh, pulled the cover off and uh, so you haven't heard much about her in a long time because she's not very useful anymore. Her cover's really boiled. And let's let's turn to the war then. Um, at the start of the war, I think the supply of weaponry was was relatively slow, and you know one of the reasons possibly was because the uh, you know Western experts made an assessment that Ukraine would fall within days of a Russian invasion. And of course, we now know <clears throat> that the Russian strategy was very much based on a quick victory, uh, charge into Kiev, send in some riot troops and have a victory parade. And I think there was some genuine belief that that would happen. How did we fail to really understand the chronic weaknesses of the Russian army? I think, um, yeah, on the one hand, the Russians vastly underestimated the resistance ability, the capabilities, uh, uh, fighting capabilities of the Ukrainians. And their, as well as their morale. And on the other hand, uh, the West overestimated the capabilities of, uh, of the Russian military. And so personally, I believe that at some point in the future, we and our allies need to do a thorough forensic review of how we got things wrong. Because as you said, everybody was expecting the Russians to walk into Kiev, um, uh, President Biden allegedly offered President Zelensky a ride, a quote unquote, out of the country. Zelensky, Zelensky reportedly said, I don't need a ride. I need, um, I need guns and bullets. And so I think um, having worked uh, 25 years in US national security, including in uh, intelligence analysis, um, 
what one where, where intelligence serves us well is on the hardware side, on the quantitative side. But often in our, uh, the intelligence community gets it wrong on the qualitative side. So it's easier to measure numbers of tanks, ships, um, even technological uh, advances. And, and in fact, the Russians uh, did a, started carrying out a, a major military reform starting in 2008 and ongoing. And I have to say, from what I've read, our military very impressed, very impressed by that. And our intelligence community was. But what they couldn't easily measure was the intangibles. And those include morale, efficiency, um, uh, capabilities. Um, even, e they even got, I think they got wrong their assessment of command control and communications, which they should have had a better grasp of because, we're, uh, because uh, NATO intelligence is really good at, at measuring that. <clears throat> and so it wasn't, it was only until the Russians actually deployed that we got to see their critical weaknesses in terms of lack of uh, terrible logistics, um, capabilities, um, rigid command and control, um, print, almost primitive communication, surprisingly, given the reforms that they had been carrying out. The corruption, we didn't have a good grasp of how, of how much, how deep corruption uh, permeates the Russian military. Um, and all of that uh, boils down to a force that is not capable of meeting the expectations of its leaders, um, both political and military. So they're bogged down in Ukraine. Um, the, the, the Russian military has suffered terrible casualties. Um, the, the British intelligence just recently came out with an assessment that um, at least 25,000 Russians have been killed in action. Think about it. Four months, 25,000 killed. And among those, at least a dozen generals, 60 plus colonels killed in action. And uh, I worked on Afghanistan uh, during the 1980s to get the Soviets out of there. And in 10 years of their ill-fated intervention in Afghanistan, the Russians lost 15,000 killed in action and probably at least three times that many wounded. And then many more who, uh, veterans who uh, went back home with drug addictions, mental health issues, and so on. And that had an effect back in the in Russian, Soviet, in those days, Soviet society. And I studied that very closely in those, in those days. And I apply the lessons learned to what we're seeing today. Um, and I think that um, uh, not enough people are focusing in on the impact that Ukraine's, the Russian losses are in Ukraine are having in an incipient way at this point, but will take a, on greater momentum if this continues, this conflict continues the way it has with Russian human losses, 
material losses. They've lost at least half their tanks. They've been taking antique vintage tanks out of mothballs to replace um, some that have been lost. Their um, manpower issue is a very serious one. They, they can't recruit enough volunteers. And on and on and on, I can go on and on. The Russian economy is uh, slated to, uh, the GDP is slated to contract by 10% uh, this year. Um, Russia has uh, defaulted on its foreign debt for the first time since the Bolshevik revolution. Think about that. So I have, I'm pretty optimistic that uh, the costs to Russia of this war are going to um, redound to Ukraine's favor. I can't say what kind of solution, what kind of peace will result. Uh, that's too hard to predict. But I think Ukraine is going to continue as a viable democracy in the future. But the costs are going to be very high for both countries. And um, do you think it's a real problem then that we don't have enough uh, journalists and commentators in Russia? Fortunately, um, we don't have enough people on the journalists, Western journalists on the ground in Russia. Remember those early days of the conflict, we we're getting this terrific reporting out of Moscow and elsewhere. Um, people, the journalists who went el deep, elbow deep into the crowds and talked with people and were able to put their cameras on um, on Russians uh, and what they were thinking. And we don't have much of that anymore, almost none. Mm. Um, so one, ha one has to wonder, uh, I think just below the surface, there's uh, this roiling, boiling, um, unrest that may get um, more pronounced. I mean, the latest report I heard, and this is through, you know, Russian opposition TV networks, um, that the um, mothers and widows of soldiers are now under observation by the FSB. So they've That's learned right. that lesson from Afghanistan and they are already right. trailing. Also, when, when I think it's very tragic that the Russians, as far as I know today, have done nothing to reclaim the bodies of their killed in action. And so these, uh, K, these KIA Russian soldiers are being kept in freezer cars in, um, in Ukraine by the Ukrainians. Um, wait, the, the Ukrainians have been urging the Russians to take them back as a humanitarian issue, mm -hmm. but they are. And when, the, when bodies are repatriated from the battlefield, as in Afghanistan during the 80s, the Russians, um, uh, the military, fly these bodies in, in, the, in the dark of night in the wee hours of the morning, and they're whisked off to a cemetery and quickly buried uh, to keep that public attention to a minimum. Um, far, again, that's a leverage that the West, I think the Ukrainians play can play. The West helped helps the Ukrainians by supplying the modern weaponry to make that happen. And um, so 25,000 maybe killed in action. Well, there's, a, like I said, maybe 75 or more thousand who uh, Russian troops who've been wounded. And when they come back home, you can't bury wounded men. People know, the families talk, they see them, they're visible. And these are huge, huge numbers, aren't they? And you mentioned Afghanistan a minute ago, and of course, Afghanistan and the loss in that war uh, 
led uh, as a sort of drip feed into the collapse of the Soviet Union. And when that collapse came, it was extremely rapid. Um, and again, Western experts, despite watching the Kremlin, despite watching a society um, really that was morally bankrupt and, and falling to pieces, um, they didn't predict the fall of the Soviet Union would no. happen in that way. No, in, in, the, in defense of the intelligence community, and I speak broadly, not just the American, but our, um, British and our allies as well, because they all work very closely together. In their defense, I have to say, you know, people expect them to be Nostradamus, to predict this and predict that. Well, that's not what they do, really. And it's a very risky proposition to do that. So what they do is they, what the intelligence analysts do is they take, they study a broad uh, array of variables and come up with various scenarios. So I remember when I was reading intelligence reports on the Soviet Union in the period you um, reference, um, reports about Gorbachev and Glasnost and the Russian economy, the Soviet economy, and so on. Some things they got right, uh, but they never, Again, I have to go back. I never recall any report saying this is what's going to happen. They would say, given the variables on the Russian economy, with the Russian economy, uh, we see a steady decline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they wouldn't, I never recall seeing a report that uh, the Russian economy is going to collapse in April of you know, 1989 or something. Uh, they never, you just don't see those kinds of reports. But you're right. They did overestimate the durability, the sustainability of the Soviet economy and the, um, the, the strength of security services in the Soviet Union at that time. So yeah, they get things wrong. And if we apply that to the situation today, there are some dissident voices on the Russian side um, uh, prophesying the, the actual collapse of the Russian Federation. Now, whether we would want that to happen or not, um, do you think there is a possibility that you could see a rapid disintegration of the Russian Federation itself? Yeah, so I'm going to go out on a limb right now because I'm no longer on payroll of Uncle Sam. Um, and I have no bosses to report to, uh, but I, I've written about this. And uh, I've one recent essay I wrote was how Putin will be taken down. And um, so it's a two-part answer to your question. One is that very, answering that very question, but also whether the Russian Federation can survive as a viable nation, uh, an intact country. <clears throat> In any case, I believe that as Russian military losses mount, as the Russian economy takes, can, takes a long-term hit, as um, expectations among the Russian people for a better life diminish. As the body bags mount coming home, um, I believe that um, there will be a chain reaction, something of a chain reaction that will lead to Putin's demise, his ouster from power. And how do I, why do I say that? I say that by studying uh, what happened in the World War I in post-World World War I period and, and what happened to, to Russia then. Um, 
two million dead. Uh, the Russians lost two million dead in World War One. Their uh, their commanders were terrible. The Tsar took over direct control of the forces, and he had no qualifications to do so. The economy was spiraling out, spiraling out of control with high inflation, shortages of food, and so on. And uh, but it was uh, really among the Russian Russian troops in the field that desertions and as desertions and mutinies multiplied. It, it climbed up the political chain and to the point where um, various uh, security apparatuses of the, of the czar were turning against them, including Cossacks. Um, and then he was abandoned, abandoned even by his, uh, his own henchmen, his security henchmen in the end, to the point where the whole, the whole regime just fell apart. Now, I'm not, I can't predict that exact same scenario will affect Putin, but as long as the military losses mount, and as long as, as the economic impact of sanctions can have a deeper effect on the Russian economy, I think over time, as we've seen before with Russian history, but in other cases as well, that, um, that there will be splinters and fissures and, and divisions that will develop uh, to the point where the strong man will be will have his rope run out, his string will run out. And I, I think I think we could see that happen. Now, and, and I, can, I and others much smarter and more knowledgeable than me can only really speak in fairly broad terms because we aren't. As with the intelligence agencies, nobody is Nostradamus. So, well, can Russia, uh, can the Russian Federation survive as a, an intact country? I think it's a toss of the coin. Um, there are experts out there who are studying the some scenarios where the Russian Federation could split apart, uh, split apart, um, where you have uh, European Russia as a successor nation, but with uh, Northern Siberia and other you know, Caucasus um, uh, nations and, and others just, just splitting off um, and going their own way. If things would have to, I would think, and I think you know better than I with your background, things would have to get very bad for that to happen. But I remember, again, the, the fall of the Soviet Union. I, 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 was, I, I was taken by surprise, and, and I can tell you some vignettes on that. But um, nobody can predict what's going to happen. And as long as Putin, continue, Putin continues down this course, he's only weakening his nation. And the centripetal forces that can take root, leading to secession, split up um, could become very viable. They could gain momentum. And of course, we saw this with the split up of the Soviet Union. It, it did happen. It has happened in recent history. Um, My take on, on, on that is, is similar, but it's that things only happen in Russia, especially uh, radical changes, when it's in someone's interests. You know, there, there are no accidents. So the revolution itself 
on my understanding of it, uh, happened because it was in the interests of a small group of, uh, you know, radically minded terrorists, essentially, but also the collapse of the Soviet Union happened because it was the interests of a certain elite that were backing Yeltsin. They could see how they could gain economic advantage from that collapse and create a new political environment in, in one fell swoop. Um, I, I would imagine the same is true here in a country where you don't have uh, a hugely strong political will amongst the people, uh, unlike in Ukraine, where they've gone out and demonstrated numerous times, uh, even in the cold for weeks on end to try and change and reform their society, there's no such popular movement in Russia. Um, my, my colleagues in the CIA uh, who are retired now, but left the, the agency recently and who specialize in Russia, Prior to that, many of them, the Soviet Union, believe that the um, when it comes, if it comes, the coup against Putin will come from what uh, the Russians term the Siloviki. Yes. Siloviki being the security uh, guys, uh, the intelligence uh, people, the, the protective guards, the uh, military, uh, those elite, the security elite who would see, who, when they see that their bread is no longer buttered on their side, when they see that their economic interests aren't being met anymore uh, by being a member of the elite, when they see that Russia's going down the tubes, will finally act. Um, the thing about the, the, what my friends, uh, intelligence friends who served in Russia tell me is that these guys, the Soloviki, the security people, um, there's two things about them that um, to keep in mind. One, they're, they're extremely skilled in operating in secret because in a society, an authoritarian society like Russia's, you know, traditionally authoritarian society like Russia's, that's how they're, they're accustomed to working. So. They work in compartments, the compartmented uh, cabals, if you will, in tight secrecy. Um, people whom they intrinsic with people they they intrinsically trust. The other thing is that um, they, uh, when they act, they can act quite quickly when they take action. So it's unpredictable. So I read. In journalists writing repeatedly about, well, um, Putin has put together a 340,000 man, uh, Ros what they call Rosgvardia, uh, National Guard, mm -hmm. that serves, that answers directly to Putin. That Putin put to, has put together a, a protective detail that puts our US Secret Service to shame, 20,000 Russian uh, security officers, uh, part of the presidential Praetorian Guard, uh, that he's got all of this, these layers of security around him that no coup plotters could possibly even plot, much less carry out a coup. Well, my answer to that is, uh, is uh, 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 Shah Reza Pahlavi. It's uh, Eric Honecker of uh, East Germany. It's uh, Samosa of Nicaragua. 
um, and on and on and on. Uh, Ceausescu of Romania, all these dictators had the same kind of thing put in place. Pinochet too in Chile, I mean, goes on and on. But if things in the country, if the situation conditions in, their, in a given country go bad, you'd be surprised how fast all that security melts away as these compartmented, highly uh, secretive Soloviki types, these security guys can actually um, conspire to remove a strong man. I mean, how many of these people, how many dictators die in office? Almost all I of them. I can't think of any. Hitler did, but he <laughs> put a gut bullet through his head. Yeah. Um, not many. And Stalin, there's always this story of the doctor's plot that he was poisoned. Nobody will ever know. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, few strong men, few dictators actually die peacefully in their beds in, while in office. And so I, I, I like to remind people of that. And I think that scenario is what's almost certainly playing out in Putin's head, especially when you see him at these very long tables. It's not just to humiliate Western leaders. It's also to uh, keep a safe distance between himself and people who might have ill intent towards him. I'm sure the Gaddafi scenario plays through his head from morning till night. Yeah, you, you have to ask yourself, why does he do that? I mean, it's very strange. But in 30, when Macron, when Macron went there and met with him, and they were sitting across this table. They said this table was at least um, it was at least 20 feet long, probably 30 feet. Um, and um, why does he do it? I'm convinced that Putin does that not because of coronavirus. That may have something to do with it, but I think it's because he doesn't want anybody to get close to him. They say even in, his, even in the Kremlin chambers, uh, very few people, he has contact with very few people, very few. Um, so, um, the man has uh, been in power too long. It's affected his manner of thinking, which inevitably happens with these men in history. And it affects their thinking and their attitudes and makes them ultra paranoid and it skews their decision making. So you have to ask yourself, I mean, Putin decides, makes the decision to invade Ukraine, a peaceful, democratic country of 44 million people. Is he nuts? Um, you know, he thought it was going to be a cakewalk. You have to ask yourself is, if his uh, isolation and his um, being surrounded by yes men for so many years really affected his judgment in that regard. Because he's one thing you have to credit Putin with as people like to say, he's actually been a quite skilled poker player tactically. He's he's very been very uh, expert at at exploiting a given issue, but strategically that's another question. And I see I think we're seeing now the strategic failure that um, he's being he's ex experiencing with this Ukraine adventure. It's a it's a strategic failure. It's one of the key components of uh, of our policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine to to in stimulate a strategic failure. The others being to uh, maintain uh, a viable democratic Ukraine.
to avoid a direct conflict with, with Russia and uh, with keeping the Western alliance together and um, uh, forming our policy around our policies around Western values. But the a key one is the strategic failure. Well, thank you, Mr. Putin, for helping us in that key goal, because you're really doing it yourself. That's the way many of us look at it. And isn't spycraft, by its very nature, a fairly paranoid business? And, you know, being brought up through the ranks in the KGB, that is probably one of the most paranoid spy services in the world. And then this isolation since COVID. I mean, you've got layers and layers of suspicion and paranoia that have gone to form his fairly warped worldview. That's true. There, um, I was reading a, an article just the other day about um, some Russian experts, uh, Russian emigre security experts um, have um, stated that, according to their sources um, in, the, uh, in Russian intelligence, that they, the SVR, Foreign um, Spy Service, the FSB, the Domestic Spy Service, the GRU, the Military Intelligence Agency, have been um, have failed their policy policymakers by pretty much giving them, as you say, uh, the information they want to hear as opposed to the information that they need to hear. And so I think that has a part of it. Sure. Why, why do you make? Why would anybody make um, disastrous policy? decisions um, when they should know better. I mean, we, the United States did that with Vietnam. The intelligence that actually the diplomatic reporting and, and much of the intelligence going back to the early 60s on Vietnam was quite spot on. It's just that uh, Lyndon Johnson and members of Congress um, weren't paying attention. So any country can fall into that. But when you have an authoritarian regime, where truth is not valued and where uh, sycophancy is valued, um, you'll get skewed reporting. I guess, God help the poor in, uh, Russian intelligence officer who writes the uh, report, sends dispatches back to Moscow uh, on the way things really are in the field uh, with Russian involvement in Ukraine. Probably that, that person's career isn't going to last very long, I would guess. Yeah, and after 20 years, probably there's very, very few of those individuals left, if any. Um, I think it'd be great to sort of, with the last question, sort of end really where we started and actually tackle one of the main Russian propaganda tropes that still has some traction in the West. And that is that the war is largely the fault of NATO expansion um, that went on uh, in the 90s and beyond. Could you please explain why you think this myth that is so popular with Russian propagandists, why is, 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 is this not reflective of reality? I was in Washington working European affairs at a high level when this policy was made, uh, when we and the Gorbachev came to an agreement on the role of NATO <clears throat> as Eastern Europe was throwing off communism and uh, breaking away, going their own way. We had agreed with the Russians that not to expand NATO troops into Germany uh, for a year. 
and for thereafter to have basically domestic German security uh, handle security in East, the former GDR. And beyond that, there was no commitment made by the United States and the NATO, our NATO allies, not to expand NATO into the other East European countries. And there's something called the founding document, which also encapsulates this for those who are very nerdy in your audience and want to look it up, the, the, um, the, the Moscow founding document. In any case, um, on the other side of the coin, NATO's policy has always been to entertain uh, applications for membership on the part of any nation that wanted to pursue that with no guarantee that they would be accepted. That's, we've never, that's been a policy that we've never um, changed, uh, that the NATO members have never altered. So if Moldova or Georgia or Ukraine wish to apply to NATO, they're free to do that. And, and then it, there are other things that take it from theirs, various steps, um, including political considerations that are taken in consideration. So never did, so the Russians loved throughout this line that we, we broke a promise not to expand in Eastern Europe. Well, that wasn't, that's not how it's done. These European nations uh, individually uh, sought membership and most of, them, most of them who have applied have gotten it. And, um, and that's their decision. It, 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 I, Again, put, looking at this through the, a Russian lens, the lens is cloudy. It's infused with paranoia and fear, which goes way back in Russian history. This is nothing, nothing new. If you look at Russian history, they, the, over a period of centuries, uh, Russian uh, czars and leaders have always feared what they call encirclement by foreign powers. And for a good reason, actually, if you look at the Russian history, it's been one of invasion and slaughter, genocide. I mean, uh, so this is, this is part of the Russian mentality. So they look, at, um, they look at the world through a different lens than we in the West. And for them, it's many, I think for most of them, it's very real to varying degrees, their paranoia, their fears. They see NATO as a creeping, aggressor organization. Um, and, um, and they feel that they need to, many Russians feel that they need to put a stop to that, that advance of, of NATO and Western democracies. Isn't it it's very interesting. Uh... You've talked with Russian, many, many Russians over many years. And I have talked, I've known many Russians myself in my former job as a diplomat. And you talk with um, a Russian diplomat or Russian uh, intelligence officer and ask them their view of the world. It's like, um, it's another universe that they're living in, many of them. Some of them are very savvy and they don't buy onto the complete story, although they'll, they'll feed back the talking point, maybe. But, um, but that psychological element really needs to be 
explored more um, thoroughly. I think when you, if you want to study deeply what motivates Russian behavior. I think uh, also um, it's uh, one of the arguments that is sort of left out of the analysis of people like Mearsheimer and others is that this fear of NATO and turning it into something of a, of a bogeyman uh, is a very, very useful tool for internal suppression and coercion. And I think that's the other side of the equation, which is often left out, um, you know, uh, and in some ways it's more important. Uh, my, for what it's worth, my take on the Ukrainian war is that it's far more uh, about having the threat of a successful democratic neighbor with higher GDP, and that actually proves you can tackle post-Soviet corruption. Uh, I won't say they haven't done it that effectively, but there certainly is a willingness to tackle it and move on. For me, that is more of a driving force about why the war is happening now rather than the future, and that Ukraine is rapidly making economic progress, GDP uh, going up, earnings per head, and lifestyle improving, and you cannot have that as a model or template for your own population if you're Putin. Well, in to, to continue on, along that line, and if you do let it happen, allowing that to threaten your own power, you're, you're, if you have a corrupt elite in, in calling the shots in Moscow, think about it, the, the, the thing they, they fear the most is a, a free, a free society with an acting democracy and uh, and activities to counter corruption. It, it totally that threatens their power, their economic power, their political power, um, their personal standing, their family, you name it. So yeah, any any kind of society that has that's ruled by that kind of clique, it, the last thing they want is to have a, a free democratic system right on their doorstep, because then their own people start taking note. We saw that in Belarusia. Belarusians almost overthrew Lukashenko back uh, over a year and a half ago or so. And um, it was the same, I think that was the same dynamic at play there. Uh, perhaps also in Kazakhstan, although I think that's more, uh, more involved than that. But I think that there were some elements of that. Well, James Brenner, I could keep talking for hours, uh, but I know I think we've come to the end of, of our time here. And I really wanted to thank you for your insights that you've given us from decades within the foreign policy establishment in the United States. It's been a really great pleasure speaking with you. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thanks very much for having me.